Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. My name is Kim Robinson, and I have the pleasure of serving as a group leader at one of the Wren groups. So I wanted to take just a moment to invite you. There are two groups on Sunday mornings. There's a book discussion downstairs, and then there's a new one called How to Study the Bible, and that's the one that I get the pleasure of doing. So I just wanted to invite you guys and just show you how small the book is. So you're not overwhelmed. We're not going to solve any philosophical differences or theological arguments. We're just simply going to study the Bible. So consider um, joining the study. It's on the second floor on Sunday, so you don't even have to take another night from 9 to 9.50. We're even going to eat foods from the first century. So if you're an olive fan or a fig fan, you got to join this group. So let's read the word for today. Luke 6, 46 to 49. Build your house on the rock. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The reading of the word. Thanks be to God. I feel as if we should take a victory lap on that last song. Um, that bridge is ridiculous, amen? And I wonder, I wonder how, like, (laughs) I did not prep this. This is just me talking at this point. I I just wonder how, like, how much of an impact uh, a simple bridge line or simple bridge chorus would have on our lives if we believed it. Like, if we believed it. I, I, I think sometimes... We think uh, the weekend is just the battleground to overcome the dark places of our lives. Like we can get through the week because we're busy with classes and work and stuff, but Friday night hits like you're like, okay, it's the weekend. It's my time now. And so the battle begins, or so we think. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I argue before all of you, the battle has already been won. (laughs) 
The enemy has been defeated. Jesus has claimed us as his own. You, my friend, are victorious. So take a victory lap. Walk around, stomp, kick, take, take your shoes off, get relaxed. We're going to praise Jesus up in here. That's me trying to be relevant for the young people in the room. Somebody said I dress like the 90s, and I, I take offense to that because the 80s is the best decade. Amen, somebody. All right, a easy, thus saith the Lord. It is settled. It is settled. So let us take a victory lap. Um, settle in. We're going to be here for a little bit, okay? Lord, open their minds. Open their minds, Lord. Open their hearts. Help us to hear. The young apprentice, he was raised amongst monks and lapped, lapsed sages. They told the young apprentice that you must choose for yourself a master. And so the apprentice wondered aloud, won't I have to follow the same master under whose teaching I have been raised? But the sages told him, no, you must make that decision for yourself. Well, if I decide to follow the master, how do I follow him? And one of the old sages, bent and bruised from a lifetime of his own apprenticeship, he leveled a single trembling finger at two paths that opened up before them. The first road was wide and accommodating, and its terrain a flat and even blanket of soft grass. The sky was bright blue and cloudless overhead. A homely wooden sign marked the path, and on its gnarled and weathered surface was fixed a single word, death. To the left, the second road was nothing like the first. It was tight and it was winding, overgrown thorns and brambles lining both sides, a canopy of leafy branches enclosing overhead like a tapestry of splintering bone. It was dark, it was foreboding, and set before it was a sign not unlike the first in appearance, but written across it was a different word, life. And the lapsed sage said, if you choose to follow him, the master will lead you and he will be with you on the road that leads to life. But the apprentice was afraid and he said, well, the master's road scares me. The other road looks easier to travel. And the sage says, it is, but it leads to death. Well, I'm afraid that if I walk the master's road, then I might die. You will, and then you will live, he says. Well, suppose I choose no masters. All of us choose masters, he said. All of the other masters, you will find them on the wide and bright road. Well, suppose I walk the frightening road. How can I know the master's teaching? How can I know the master's teaching and that I might find the way? Well, you'll find his way through his word because it is written and he will write it again upon your heart. Well, how can I trust what is written that it is the master's word. Well, the master has entrusted his word to scribes and to elders and artists and poets and playwrights. And even the master himself has preserved his trustworthy word. Well, how can a master author his word through imperfect writers? The apprentice asks. Well, this, the sage says, you must learn. Well, can I have proof at least? No, you cannot. So the apprentice looked at the harrowing road again and asked, well, how can I know that I have read the master's word well? Generations of readers have come before you and the master's word is not read alone, but it's, in, it's read in the company of generations of readers past and present. 
And their prayerful vigilance and centuries of studies will help guide you and protect you so that you will not wander from the truth of what is written. But what if I don't like what is written? Well, sometimes you will not. The truth is not safe, but it will not bend to your will. Other sages have told me that the master's word is just a simple book of rules without secret or mystery, that it just simply says what it says. You should just do what it says. And the old sage just laughed. What if I refuse to obey his word? And the sage responded, you are not the master's prisoner. You are his beloved and you may follow the master's word or you may reject it. And if you seek the master's word, you will find trouble, but you will also find the truth. And so the apprentice asked, can I follow the master without the master's word? And the sage said, no. And so the apprentice opened the book and began to read. This is a parable written by an artist, author, and pastor, a man named Josh Porter. Pastor is a church in Van City, just north of Portland, Oregon. His book is called Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. It's sort of punk rock, if you know what I mean. And there's a popular trend in faith circles today to just deconstruct our faith. But what exactly is deconstruction? Now, many of you know I'm a big fan of Russell Moore. I talk about Russell Moore a lot. He says a lot of things that I agree with, and he's just a very thoughtful person. Anyways, Russell Moore says this. For some people, deconstructing just means losing their faith altogether. altogether. They just become atheists, agnostics, spiritual but not religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And others, deconstructing means that they still believe in Jesus, but they struggle with how the religious institutions have failed, i.e. the church is broken. Amen. He continues, and there are also many who, uh, whom de- deconstructing means maintaining an ongoing commitment to Orthodox Christianity, like we believe all the right things, and some of them still have a devout attachment to the church, a robust commitment to the church, but they are trying to untangle, deconstruct this cultural political baggage associated with the word evangelical. So we can see there's just no general consensus as to what deconstruction actually is. However, at a base level, it is this. Many people are questioning their faith. Some are looking to see if their faith is just too dang simplistic for the complex world in which we live. And if so, they're looking to reconstruct their faith, a new and stronger faith, one can that support them through all of the challenging times. And if it doesn't do that, then they just get rid of it altogether. I want you to hear me. This is me speaking. I firmly believe as followers of Jesus that our faith will change over time. I say this constantly. If you have the same faith you had at 13 when you gave your life to Jesus at some youth camp and you're 28 now or 48 now, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) There's no way at 13 you had it all figured out. Someone say amen. Your faith is going to change. It should always change over time. Sometimes they're just small tweaks. Sometimes there's larger changes. So I find merit in working through the tough questions of faith. But I also believe this, and this is my contention here, that that not all deconstruction is intended to strengthen our faith. I contend that some people don't like what is required of them to be followers of Christ. 
And so they modify what it means. And while we may euphemize this action by using the term deconstruction, the Bible has another term for it. It's called falling away. This becomes glaringly apparent when people start listening to other voices, contrarian viewpoints, which in itself is not a bad thing, guys. Hear me, I listen to podcast teachings. I read books, more books than I wouldn't want to admit here. And most of them I do not agree with. Anyone? Most of them I'm like, ah, I don't see that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm just telling you, it is okay to listen to contrarian viewpoints. So we start listening to other voices, but here's the problem. They stop listening to God. And so now the only voices they have are the alternative ones on social media, gross, right? Or these obscure blogs on the internet. And since they've shut off the spigot of life, that is hearing the word of God, they begin to lose themselves. Listening to God, hear me, is important. And doing what he says matters too. Bible teacher and author Peter Kroll writes in his commentary on Luke that the Sermon on the Plain, so we've been in Luke chapter 6 for a little while, and in this section of Luke chapter 6, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's a, the junior version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, okay? And he writes that the Sermon of the Plain falls into a larger section of Luke's gospel. It starts in Luke chapter 4 and goes all the way to Luke chapter 10, and in this section, it highlights the ministry of Jesus. It speaks to him teaching his disciples and others. It, it's, it talks about him healing people with sicknesses and diseases. It talks about Jesus having authority over demons and the devil. Yes, yes, yes. And in the chapters leading up to this sermon here in Luke 6, Luke has highlighted a few themes for us. And I want to highlight those for us before we get started. One of the themes here is that of hearing Jesus. You might recall when Jesus first entered into a synagogue, um, back in Luke 2 or 3 or 4, I don't remember, I didn't look it up. But he goes into a synagogue and he reads a passage of scripture from a scroll. It's a scroll of Isaiah. And this passage that he reads, it talks about that the, the Messiah, the one chosen by God will come and he will pro proclaim good news to the poor, that he will set captives free, he will bring sight to the blind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when Jesus reads this passage, Luke tells us that he sits down and says this, today you have heard this passage being fulfilled in your hearing. Luke is saying it is important to listen to the words that Jesus Says, And there are many other passages that speak about hearing. Luke 4.23, it says they wanted to come and hear, or see rather, what they had only heard about. These are people hearing about Jesus and the, the, the faraway reaches, and they are hearing about the famousness or the magnificence of Jesus, and they come to see him. Luke 4.28, and when they heard what Jesus had to say, they became mad at him. This is speaking of the religious leaders. Luke 5, 1 and 15, it says, since that time in the synagogue of Nazareth, the crowds came to gather to what? To hear Jesus. Luke 6.18, hearing and healing were the motivations of those people gathered to hear Jesus. Peter Kroll continues to say that this, there's a, another theme that's mentioned here. Not only does Luke uh, infer for us that he, he wants us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, but he, he says that some people will listen to Jesus and do what he says, and others will listen to him and just get mad at him and become frustrated with what he says. You can't tell me what to do. 
Ouch. So Jesus, we're learning from Luke, he aims unapologetically at those people who will hear him. And remember this, because we talked about this a few weeks ago. Hearing, in the biblical sense, is not just physically hearing the words of Jesus, but, but actually hearing them and doing something or acting upon them. It, it includes the obedience of doing. And this obedience is the emphasis of what Kim read for us this morning. In Luke 46 to Luke 6, 46 to 49, it's the, the, the house being built on the sand or the house being, you know the story, right? You heard it. Luke 6.46 says this, when Jesus asked his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? Jesus uses this verb to do five times at the end of his sermon. Twice in verse 43, once in 46, once in 47, and once in 49. And using these as proof, biblical scholar Joel Green says, Jesus is drawing his speech to a close with a clarion call to add obedience to the hearing of his message. Jesus wants us to do what he says. Is this shocking anyone? Huh. Is everybody awake? I want to make a couple disclaimers as we move through this. I do not think, the first disclaimer is this, that Jesus is not preaching a message of salvation in this sermon. Okay? You don't have to obey his commands to be saved. Breathe a sigh of relief. Whew. Right? Because I want to forgive people, but some people just aren't worth it. Whew. We'll talk about that next week. Number one, okay, Jesus, this is not a preaching, a salvation message. Number two, Jesus is not saying that you have to be perfect in your obedience. But you do have to try. So, this is not a gospel message. Rather, this sermon and the more recognized sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, is what Tim, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls a manifesto of upside-down kingdom living. It's an ethics teaching. He says that in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus reveals how God's people, rather God's love for his people, for the outsider and for the poor, means that his kingdom is going to bring a reversal of all of our value systems. So following after Jesus should look different than the world around us. We agree with that. And Jesus is saying, Luke records for us, he is here to, to create a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to his invitation. And they're going to practice the things he says. This things like radical generosity that we talked about a few weeks ago. Talk about serving the poor and serve by being peacemakers and, and operate in forgiveness for other people. These, these new people of Jesus, they will be pious, deeply pious, but they will reject religious hypocrisy. Who rejects a religious hypocrisy? Yes, I'm the only one. That's okay. I've not thrown up since I was 21 years old. And yes, that's the reason. But when I think about throwing up, I always think about religious people. Are you thinking about me? Probably. No, Jesus knows that his people are different. They look different, they sound different, they act different, they think differently. And this is why he says, this is what my people do. That's what they do. It's what they do. 
So all of these things are saying, well, this is what the, the followers of Jesus do. And the danger here might be to assume that Jesus just cares about our actions. And listen, that's misguided. Jesus cares much more than our actions. He wants us to be um, a changed person. First, Jesus cares deeply about the nature of who we are. You can imagine in Luke's world, this is pre-Freudian, right? This is before we sat on couches and let psychologists and, and psychotherapists get inside of us. Before you could get inside of someone, the only way to know what was inside of a person was to look at their actions. If you wanted to see what they believed, look at what they did. And Jesus says, people will know that you belong to me because of what? Your actions. I don't have to put you on a therapist's couch and figure this out. Your actions will prove to the world, will prove to me who you are. Last week, we looked at the, Preston spoke and talked about the parable of the tree and its fruit. And Jesus closes that whole parable saying this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces what? Evil. So Jesus is intimating for us that a person must first become good before they can produce good works. God is not asking you to act good and not be good on the inside. Is this tracking with anyone? Jesus is not laying before you something that you cannot do. He says, you absolutely can do this, but first you must be made good. We call this being born again. That's what Jesus calls it in John chapter three. We need our, our inner lives to be transformed. This transforming of evil to good is what we call salvation. We have to be saved First, So these things that Jesus is talking about, he's saying, this is what my people do. He's expecting them to have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit first. So let's not forget what the Apostle Paul writes. This is great. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is a very popular verse in the, the church, says this, that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of our own works. Yes and amen. Yes, yes. But we fail to continue reading in verse 10. It says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created for good works. We quote John 3.16 about God loving the world so much that he gave his only son that those believe in him would have eternal life. But we stop reading and should go all the way down to verse 36 that says this, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Bro, I thought you said this wasn't a salvation message. <laughs> I, I thought you said works isn't our salvation. It's not. John, again, is saying that a transformed person lives differently. A transformed person works good fruit. Good fruit comes from that work that God has done inside of you. Anyways, going back to the Sermon on the Plain, we see this, that Jesus' audience is being challenged to take additional steps in their response. More than just coming to hear him, Jesus is now asking him to do something. He wants them to act in obedience. And he knows that the practices of this Obedience will, be, will come from a regenerated work that God has done on the inside of them. In the sermon's closing remarks in Luke chapter 6, Jesus describes two types of people. And these two types of people who, whose hearts are being revealed by their actions. It's possible the hearts of those individuals are represented in the groups of people here today. 
There are metaphorical blind people, leading blind people. There's hypocrites. There's good people who produce good fruits. All of these different types of people. And Jerry, Jesus rather, Jerry, that's funny. Jesus carries, <laughs> I might just start calling him Jerry from now on. <laughs> but Jesus says there are two types of people building houses. There's two types. It's a metaphor for building your life, your spiritual life of building a house. He says, one of them will build on a sure foundation and that person is called wise and the other one will be called foolish because they do not. So Jesus says that the obedient follower is like the smart contractor, right? The guy who knows what he's doing, who builds his house on a sure foundation. Luke 6, 48a, the first half of verse 48 says this, that he, the obedient follower, is like a man building a house who digs deep and lays his foundation upon rock. I don't know if you've ever laid a foundation before, but it is hard work. Building a house is hard work. And I think that is the point that Jesus is making. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and we were talking about people, you know, caught up in sin. And they use this language that they're struggling with sin. And I, I remember years ago as a young pastor, um, I was counseling someone in my office and they said they were struggling with sin. And I just looked at them dead in the eye and I said, really, are you struggling with it or are you just doing it? <laughs> Is it a real struggle for you? Or are you just like, well, you know, I did it again and whatever, God forgives me. I'm like, oh, you know, we have a word for that. That's called prostituting the cross of Christ, right? You used to abuse the work of, of his forgiving your sins on the cross by dying a torturous death so that you could go, well, did it again, sorry, my bad. Hear me, obedience to the things of God is hard. Of course it is. It's not impossible. So we try. Building is hard work. Just ask anyone who's ever built something. And let's remember this, when it comes to spiritual building, like building your own life, you cannot hire the work to be done by someone else. Dang it. You can't write a check to some smelly contractor and have him do the work for you. Why is this? Because the work is inside of you. The layers of brick and mortar are to be laid upon your life. The door that Jesus is knocking upon can only be unlocked and opened by you. We cannot do it for someone else, and they cannot do it for us. And this hard work of obedience Jesus speaks of, it not only builds the kingdom of God. Again, this is a, a kingdom ethics principle. God's people are going to look different, and they're going to just take over the world. Say amen. amen. Like you mean it. Say amen. Yes. Amen. Jesus changes people, and he places people in the world, and they affect change. In Matthew's gospel, it's called salt and light. God's people are to be salt to the earth and light in dark places. That's what we do. So not only when we're obedient to God, are we transforming the world around us, but we also begin to strengthen and steady ourselves for when calamity comes towards us. Because calamity is coming for you. Luke 46b says this, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. Again, the well-builtness is obedience. The steadiness, the stability, the safety, 
All of that is produced from that work of obedience to Christ. There's a strange verse in 1 Thessalonians 3 that says this. It's speaking of God's providence. God's providence just means this, that God provides for us. He's provident over everything. And it says that in God's providence, which is his ability to provide for us, he provides for us in afflictions. That is to say, we encounter difficulty oftentimes, not just because of the fallen world that we live in, right? Sometimes we're, we fall into terrible situations because the world's a mess, yes. But sometimes our lives get really difficult because God, in his sovereign will, has set before us trials, troubles, difficulties. And these trials, they are not ill-intentioned or cruel, but rather they work to expose a life of faith or the facade of faithlessness. And this is crucial for us as believers because it is only through afflictions can we find where we are producing steadfastness or stability or strength. Um, I was praying this morning and this memory popped into my brain, so I suspect the Lord wants me to share it with you. So I'll share it with you. Almost a year ago, my wife had taken a vacation with some girlfriends. They do this uh, once a year, so they go down to Florida, have a lot of fun. I see it on Instagram, makes me mad, but what am I supposed to do, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I'll eat tuna out of a can, go eat fresh fish on the Gulf, that's fine. Whatever you want. You do you, boo. That's, that's my mantra, you do you. No, it's a cool thing she gets to do. She goes with the friends. I hate Florida, for the record, for the record. It's gross to me, it's, it's worse than Illinois. And, um, <laughs> And I say that lovingly, knowing some two of my best friends are in from Florida. Todd and Jennifer Tuggle, everyone over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, give my hand. Somebody know Todd and Jennifer. Um, my wife's in Florida. Um, my other daughter is, I think, away at school. And my oldest daughter, who was, I think, 20 at the time, um, was led by me to an airport where I dropped her off at the airport to get... A, on a, a plane to Atlanta, from Atlanta to New York, from New York to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to Spain. And I was, I was freaking out. I stayed up all night following her on Life 360. If you know what that is, you know what that is. And I'm following my daughter, and she's calling me at 2 a.m. She's lost in the Amsterdam a airport. And again, my wife is in Florida. She left me alone for this. <laughs> the next day is Sunday. I have to preach. I prepared a message. But hear me, I don't think I slept a wink. I'm losing my mind. I'm stressed out. I haven't heard from my daughter. Her phone has died. She's gone dark. I'm assuming she's been taken. I'm going Liam Neeson in my brain. I don't, I have no idea. And um, a dear friend of mine, Joe Oval, who's over here, was backstage here. And I was, he sees it in my, there's terror in my face. Like I'm going through something. And Jeff, what's happening? I'm like, dude, I, I don't know, but I'm about to freaking lose my mind, Joe. I, I haven't talked to Riley, my daughter, and, and Stacy's in Florida, and like, I don't know what to do, and I have to go preach in 20 minutes. And, and Joe stopped, and he says, Jeff, let's just pray. He's a jerk like that. <laughs> and we pray. And I, I swear to you, hand on my Bible, it's iPad, hand on my Bible, we no sooner said amen, and my phone rang. And it was my daughter in Amsterdam, or wherever she was at this point. Okay, 
in, in the trial, in that moment of anxiety and uncertainty, I'm, I was not, hear me, I was not leaning upon, nor was I trusting the stability that God offered me. My good friend Joe saw that and brought me back to reality and says, Jeff, this is where you and I live as Christians. We don't lose our mind over things like this. We go to Christ or God and he helps us. Okay, in that moment, I realized I have some weakness in my foundation. In that moment, I was tested and something produced in me that was not of God. And in that moment, thanks be to God, I saw it. And from this point forward, now I know when I become overly anxious, when I become overly stressed, what do I do? I pray. Well, I call Joe. Then I pray. <laughs> Afflictions are not always because the world is messed up. Calamity is not just because there's sinful people in the world or you made a boneheaded decision again. It's possible God in his sovereignty, he has placed before you this hurdle because he wants to see, rather, he wants you to see what's inside of you. Is anyone? Yes. He wants, to, he wants you to see it. And when you see it, it's exposed. It's light brought into the darkness. The enemy's been defeated. Jesus claims us as his own. And we, we step into the right way of living. That's what God wants for us. Whew. James chapter 1 says this, that we should count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you, the obedient follower of Jesus, may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. According to Jesus, that is the wise builder. One other disclaimer about this sermon is I don't think Jesus, as I mentioned, is looking for perfection in our obedience. If the requirement of getting into heaven is perfectly obeying all that Jesus taught, nobody would be there. Yes? Even the most fervent Christian fails sometimes. The pastor you hear standing before you failed not many months ago when I was losing my mind because my daughter was gone. We all fail. The Apostle John tells us this, that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We sin. Of course we do. We're not perfect. So God's not asking for obedience. Jesus is teaching us. Genuine faith submits to the lordship of Jesus. This is the point. And it results in a life of progressive holiness. Perfection. If you want perfection, you look to who? Jesus. If you want perfection, you look to him. And praise be to God, that's the one. He's the image that God is transforming us to look like. So we'll get there. God's Holy Spirit will do a work inside of us. And over time, you'll stop failing at that one thing. I don't know, man. That's, that's how it plays in my mind. There's a real, like when I'm about to sin and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, but then I fail and I do it. Right? I'm not going to go by Dairy Queen and get that second blizzard or whatever. I'm not going to, right? But you go around again. Just think, oh, did I thought I saw a friend of mine over there. So you go around again and then you fail. And then... But I'm telling you, there's a moment when the Spirit of God empowers you to say no. I think it was Watchman Nee who said this. And when, the, when you say no to the desires of the old man, the flesh, if you will, 
When you say no, the new man that's inside of you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he grows a little stronger. He grows a little, she grows a little stronger, however you want to look at that. And so when we, we act in obedience, it is hard at first, but there will be times when you will overcome some of the things that have stumbled you for years, for decades, and you can beat them a little at a time. Who would admit before God and these witnesses that you have actually overcome something that was a terrible thing for you in your youth, but you no longer do it now that you follow Christ? Anyone? I have lots of them. I used to cuss a whole lot more than I do. Like God has really done a work in me. That's a real thing, right? A real thing. So be encouraged. God is transforming us. Almost finished. Stay with me. Taken at face value, it appears that Jesus has really given his hearers a tough go, a really tough talk. Why do you say, you, I'm your Lord, I'm your patron, I'm the one you follow and love, but you don't do the things that I say? It sounds really hard. But we, have, we must understand that these seemingly harsh words were actually not addressed to, to newcomers or outsiders. And we know this because Luke uses this interesting language. Jesus says they call him Lord, Lord. These are self-professed followers of him. They're not just people visiting. And the word Lord is used as a term of respect, the phrase Caesar is Lord was written on all the coinage in Jesus' day, right? In fact, this became a point of contention for many of the Christians because they refused to call Caesar Lord because why? Jesus is the one true Lord, but just a term of respect and authority. And so they're coming to Jesus and say, we respect you. We, we give authority to you. But Jesus didn't believe them because they weren't acting it wholly in their lives. They were saying things with their mouths, but not acting it in their lives. And there's another aspect that Luke records for us here. He says that they, they called him Lord, Lord. Use the name twice. This is interesting. I'm going to nerd for a moment. There's only like 12 or 15 times that the, someone's name is repeated twice, back to back. And it, when it's done, it's what Douglas Stewart calls a repetition of endearment. It just means this. In ancient Semitic cultures, addressing someone by saying his or her name twice was a way of expressing endearment. That is to say, affection and friendship. Jesus is saying, you say you're my friend? You say you love me and serve me and follow me and you won't even forgive someone? And you're stingy with your stuff? I have a whole bunch, I'm swiping. These people, Stuart writes, who claimed to be close to Jesus, but they were not because of their disobedience to his will. To truly call Jesus Lord would mean that they must ascribe to the topsy-turvy characterization of the world. Jesus says his kingdom is revealed through enemy love, through lending without demand of return, of doing good to other people. A good tree produces good fruit. So we can argue whether Jesus intended his listeners to take these words seriously. This is an argument in the church sometimes that maybe Jesus didn't really mean for his people to, to do all of these things. Maybe he was just giving them this unrealistic ideal to only reveal their need for someone like Jesus, the perfect one who could fulfill all of this stuff. I just two points and I'll close with that. 
First, it is my belief that Jesus spoke these words rather before his death, burial, and resurrection. I believe that. And after his ascension back into heaven, Jesus revealed or released the Holy Spirit to his people. And even though he spoke these words before that transpired, I do believe God knew that that event was going to take place when he spoke these words. And so as God is speaking to these people, it is impossible for them to fulfill everything that he's asking of them without a regeneration, without being transformed. And that is going to take place after Jesus dies on the cross. I believe that. That's one. This transformative work in our lives is only done by God. Titus 3.5 says this, that God saved us not because of our works done in us or done by us in righteousness, but according to what his own mercy and by the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms us. Secondly, if the early Christians weren't supposed to follow these commands of Jesus seriously, then they did it wrong. Because when you look in, in antiquity, the history of the church during its first three or four centuries, the Christians were always described by two things. Their communal living, sharing everything, and their nonviolence. And this is exactly what Jesus described in his Sermon on the Plain. So you must admit at least this, that the early Christians took Jesus' words seriously and they obeyed them, whether that was Jesus' intention or not. Anyone tracking with me? All right. I'm going to skip all of this because you look half asleep. I love you. Let's close with these um, these words here. Perhaps, God help us to hear this. Perhaps it's time to stop treating the words of Jesus as some hypothetical ideal and embrace them for what they are. They are the new upside down ethics for God's people. They are the way that God is going to bring salt and light into the earth. And they are also a way to add spiritual stability and strength to us for when calamity comes in our uncertain world. Are we, are we still friends? All right. Uh, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. All right, let's bow our heads. Remember, we're taking a victory lap this morning. God, you've done, done all the work for us in Christ Jesus. And we, set, we settle into that. <laughs> we're not earning anything from you, Lord. Right? So we just take a deep breath. <sighs> take another deep breath. Let it out. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we conclude this time of reflection on your word, we thank you for your wisdom and for your guidance that are found in the teachings of Jesus. May we be like the wise builder, digging deep into your truth and obeying your commands. Lord, Lord, help us to hear your voice, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. And may our lives be a testimony of obedient love and trust in you. As we 
leave this place, as we leave Renaissance this morning, may your Holy Spirit empower us to live out this radical love and grace that Jesus taught. May we be a light in this world, living as obedient followers of Christ. And may our actions reflect the depth of our faith. Bless us, Lord. Bless us with the strength to walk the narrow path. And may we find stability and strength and surety in you, even in the face of life's challenges. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the church at home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.